Amen. From first John, chapter five, reading the first 13 verses. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that has been born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is a testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, I've been very encouraged in reading through First John. It's a little bit odd for me reading through it in accounting and engineering. Paul is so logical and builds you know, argument upon argument upon argument. And John... He, he's, he's more like sitting down with you as, as, as a grandfather and just, just telling stories. And sometimes the story comes up again just a little bit different. And, and, uh, but it is so sweet and so full of love and so full of encouragement and so full of wisdom and so full of blessing. And so I, I wanted to bring this word to you this morning from the first 13 verses of chapter 5. And uh, I wanted to speak to you about the idea of tests, victory, testimonies in you tests, victory, testimonies in you. And I want to speak uh, first about one of the most important questions in the world uh, that the tests are about. How can I know that I am a true Christian? Well, there are three tests. How we can know we're true Christians in verses one through three. Secondly, I want to speak to you about victory. I know some of you out there want to win. Some of you are like winning. You might be wondering, you know, after last night, who is going to win the national championship game when when that comes up? And and uh, and a lot of you like like winning. And uh, so. In earlier chapters. He spoke to us some about these tests, but winning and, and victory are a little more unique right here. And he's speaking of in verse four and five, the victories which overcome the world. In verse four and five, a victory and, and a winning which overcome the world. And then thirdly, I want to speak to you about three uh, unique or unusual testimonies uh, God has sent to be witnesses or testify to us concerning his son, Jesus Christ. The testimonies sent are the water, 
and the blood and the spirit. Then uh, finally, in verse 11 through 13, I want to kind of bring it home to to you and to me in considering what is what is the point of all of this. So first of all, tests, verses one to three, the apostle speaks of, of tests for us. Tests have been a frequent theme in first John. It's not surprising that he comes back to them as he concludes this book in his fifth chapter. In earlier chapters, he mentions to us in chapter one, he says, I've written these things to you that your joy might be full. So one of the reasons he brings us first, John, and if you if you want joy, this is a good book uh, to encourage you. I hope you will be encouraged by joy in this, John, but that your joy would be full. Uh, he says in uh, chapter two, I'm writing to you that you may not sin. So he's given a second point, a second major reason for writing this book is that we would be not sinning. So he said already two major things that that he's writing to us for. But in verse 13, most people believe in, in the fifth chapter, the 13th verse is is a primary, most important or the, or the real central underlying theme of the whole verse. When he says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And, and, and most most folks reading it agree that this is 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 preeminent reason for writing that we can know we have eternal life. And the main thing he uses again and again and again to help people know and discern, are you a true Christian, are three tests, three tests, a doctrinal test, a social test and a moral test are three tests he talks about. And, and he comes to him again and again. His purpose being, I'm writing to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. that so you may know that you have, have eternal life. And you're like, well, how can I really know? How? You, know, you may wonder. You may be someone who struggles you know, with assurance of salvation. And I hope this will be an encouragement to you to think about these things. Because he says here, uh, three things can help us with this. The first is the doctrinal test. The doctrinal test is, what do you believe? What do you believe? If you're, if you're sitting there right now, what do you believe? First of all, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father, who loves the Father, loves whoever has been born of Him, which is also Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, born of God. So do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is born of God? Jesus is the man. John has probably got more authority than anybody you know, ever could have had to speak at the humanity of Jesus Christ. One of the last of the surviving apostles, one of the inner circle with Peter and James, the one who laid his head on his breast, the one who Jesus told to take of his mother from the cross, the one uh, who, who was called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, John has uh, walked. He's lived with Jesus. He describes the cross. He's, he's the one who says uh, what, it, what it looked like from the cross and it describes some of the things that happened. You know, there are others that will, will add things nowadays and say, hey, I've got this new thing. They're writing these new books. They're starting these new religions. Some liberal theologians, hey, that stuff really doesn't matter. Well, they're new. They're, they're unique. They're, they're coming up with something that's not the guy who walked with them. You want to you know what happened? Let's read from the guy who walked with him. The guy who was there when he was alive. Let's read from John. And John tells us about Jesus, uh, the man. Jesus is the man. Let's read uh, the beginning of 1 John and see how he started this out. As he started this letter, this is what he said. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, 
which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life made manifest. And we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the father and with the son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So John was there. He's seen it. He's heard it. And he's telling us about it. Nobody could do it better than he could. Nobody knew can write a book. They'll be as good as what John says to us about Jesus. We says uh, in five. Anyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. Pastor Boyd's been recently telling us that Jesus Christ is not first name, last name. Several times to us. I hope some young people remember that the Jesus was his name. The Christ was his title. Christ was his title. Christ means Messiah, chosen one, anointed one. It's a title he reserved. It was a title that all the Hebrews were looking forward to, to that chosen one, that Messiah, that anointed one who would come and deliver them. Uh, they were all looking to him. They were looked, he, all of Israel looked to him, and now he had come. And John's saying, this Jesus is the Christ, and he's been born of God. Jesus the man, fully man. Christ, the Messiah, fully has a title. And born of God. He is not just man. He is God too. And John is telling us this. He is the God-man. The one prophesied by the scriptures of the prophets and all the Old Testament. And now has come and he's been born of God. Has been born of God. A lot of your translations translate a little bit differently than has been born of God. And a... Uh, John Stott makes a neat point in his commentary uh, that has been, uh, and, and that was before the ESV even existed. It's kind of funny. He says, has been is how that should be translated, and the ESV has it. Jesus Christ has been born of God. It's a present perfect tense of the verb. It's an action that's been completed in the past, but has continuing application and, and essence happening in the present. So has been born of God. Jesus Christ it's really important that it happened in the past that he's born of God, but it's really important now. It has great implication. He is God. He is born of God. He is the God man. And uh, so it's important to know and to see that he has been born of God. Sorry, born of him is the next section. Jesus Christ has been born of God as us. <laughs> we are born of God if we believe in Jesus Christ. Has been born of God is Jesus Christ in the next uh, last half of the sentence. But has been born of God. And, and uh, you think sometimes that you believe and then you're born of God. And that's not what John's saying here. John's saying everyone who believes has been born of God. So if you believe now in the past, you were born again. So you were born again before. And so now you believe. So the so order of salvation is you're born again or you're regenerated and then you believe. So God is doing that work. And, and, and he's done that work in the past and it has important implications now in the present. In you, in your life. You were born again or made alive if you believe in Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the anointed one. You are born again. You pass this test. You pass this test. 
Everyone who believes is born of God. In B, he says, and everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of of him. So this is the one born of the father. And the second half of that verse is Jesus. So if you love the father, you love the one who's born of the father, his son. Some people like to say, well, yeah, I believe in God, but I'm not sure about this, you know, Jesus and this Christianity stuff. Well, the apostle saying here, if you love the father, you love the one the father has caused to be born. If you love the father, you will love the one the father has caused to be born. He is born of God and you will love Jesus. You cannot say you love the father and not love the son the father sent. If you truly believe in the heavenly father, you believe in the son, the God man. And you pass the doctrinal test. The second test, the social test. Secondly, you must pass the social test. He says this in the next verse. By this, we know that we love the children of God. You've got to love God's children. God loves God's children, the church. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. You can't say you love the father and not love your brothers and sisters. If you love your father, you love uh, his children. You can't hate his children and love him. You've got to love his children. From Old Testament times, there have been two great commands. Love God. Love your neighbors. Love your neighbors yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. The two great commandments from, from the Old Testament times. The moral law has two sections, verses 1 to 4. Love of God. Verses 5 through 10, loving your neighbor. You may have heard people say, well, I love Jesus. I I love Christ. I love the head of the church. It's just the body I have trouble with. Just the body I have trouble with. I can't. Church just turns me off. Christian people. And, uh, you you know, that's kind of that's kind of easy to love the perfect one. (laughs) And not like the sinners. (laughs) It's kind of easy, but, but guess what? We're all sinners here together. We're all sinners here together. And so we're put together and stuck together to love one another. If we really love God, we're going to love each other too. And when we hurt, we're going to try to help each other. We're going to lift each other up in prayer. We're going to carry each other before the throne of grace. And we're going to seek to encourage each other and, and comfort each other when we're hurting. We are... Um, we were all enemies. We were all enemies when he loved us. When he loved us, we were all enemies. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It continues in verse 2, it says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Now think about the order of that verse for a minute. By this we know that we love the children of God When we love God and obey his commandments. Does it sound a little bit reversed to you? That you love, you know you love the children when you love God and obey his commandments. But it says first, you know you love the children when you love God and obey his commandments. It's weird he stuck the loving others before the loving God and his commandments, isn't it? Well, what's the point there? You know you can't love other people if you don't love God. Really love them. Really love them. 
Calvin notes that often we love others apart from God only for our advantage. It's only when we love God first that we can selflessly give love to others. Now, I think that's why so many marriages don't go past three years. I mean, you're going in for what you can get. You love them because it's to your advantage until it's not. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love the Father and keep his commandments. You want to love other people? Love God. Love God. He can give us that love to love others. We, we go into it with, give me and what can I get? But we love God. He gives to us. We can love others. We can love others. Only loving God first can we rightly love others. That's why the first table of law is the first table of law. And the second table comes second. If we love God, then we can love others. So if you love others, you pass test too. You pass test too. If you're like me, I mean, the whole idea of tests, I mean, mm, it's just got bad connotations, you know. I, I just, I just have to think back to, you know, those three-hour final exams and you know the old wooden tables of the gymnasium at the university, and you know there'd be two problems to work for three hours, and you gave like five pieces of scratch paper, and oh, just tests, but. But these tests are different. <laughs> these are tests so you can know, so you can know that you're a child of God. First was to believe in Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Second, do you love the children of God? And thirdly, you must pass the moral test. You must pass the moral test. Second half of verse two says, when we love God and obey his commandments, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. True lovers of God keep his commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. Well, what commandments do you think Jesus was speaking of? John was speaking of. The New Testament commands were not written at this time. When when they were speaking these things. It was the Old Testament moral law. The same Ten Commandments that are the basis of most of our civil laws. They define the issues that anger you the most. Most of the time you get angry. It's something somebody's done that's breaking one of the Ten Commandments. Go back to the root of it. You'll see. You'll see it's built into us, these commandments and the keeping of them. And in spite of what megachurch pastor Andy Stanley says about them, the Ten Commandments still stand. They are still the guide to the holy life. We do not need to be unhitched from them. God has connected them. He's put them together in a book that's together. And Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John says, keep the commandments. Those are the only commandments that were written when he wrote this book. His commandments and the moral law. You've got questions about that. We can talk some more. It's kind of coming out of the, the idea to hyper separate parts of 
life and the Bible into different dispensations and time periods. And, uh, and it's causing them to, to make some horrible conclusions. Some horrible conclusions. And, and whores are following after them. You know, it, it seems kind of nice to say, in some ways, you don't have to keep the commandments. Uh, if, if you want to live the way you want to live, you know, if you, if you don't like being under authority, if you're in, in your day like ours. But what, is, what does John say about it? The commandments, the keeping of these commandments are not burdensome. Some translations say grievous. And uh, is a neat way that, that uh, Pastor uh, Piper describes this is, is keeping God's commandments is, is not for the long term the hard thing. The hard thing is, is going against them. Keeping them for the long term is the freest thing you can do. And he says they're, they're just like our parachute. They're just like our parachute. Yeah, you're tied to the thing. But if you got it on, you're going to be a whole lot better than if you don't have it on when you come out of that plane and head toward the ground. They're just like the rails the train runs on. It's like the rails the train runs on. It says on those rails. Boy, it's stuck on those rails and can't get off to the left or the right. But when it gets off, you see a horrible crash. You see a horrible crash. The keeping these commandments, he says, is not burdensome. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Is light. It's, it's way better than what this world calls freedom. What this world calls freedom can wreck and destroy your life. His commandments can give you life. Can give you life. But I'll tell you what, they... They can be burdensome if you're doing them in your strength. Burdensome is trying to keep the commands of God in the strength of the flesh, in my power. Burdensome is, is trying to keep the commandments of God and not realizing that, that our God is merciful. That He's a merciful God who loves us. Burdensome is, is not realizing that while we're trying to keep commandments, we have a God who will forgive and, and wants to pour out forgiveness for us and give grace to us. When we stumble and when we fall. Burdensome is doing the work in our strength with no mercy, with no good God, with no forgiveness as we trudge through life. But in God's strength, with His power, with His Holy Spirit's power, they're freeing. They're life. The Holy Spirit can make God's commandments a delight for us. A lamp for our feet and a light for our path. So a true Christian can come unto Jesus and see that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Young people, a yoke was like a, this thing you put around the necks of, of oxen and it would help them pull the cart or pull the plow. And it was, a, it was kind of harder for that ox to pull that cart or to pull that plow when they had that yoke around them. But Jesus is saying his way is easier his way is easier. He gives the spirit. He gives his power. He gives his help. So for keeping God's commandments. Purposefully, not perfectly, purposefully. His letters all through of what we do when we sin. His letters all through of telling you you're a liar if you think you don't sin and say you're, you're not a sinner. We deal with the sin. His letter says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteously. 
But the third test, are you seeking to purposefully keep God's commands? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you love your brothers? Do you keep his commands? And you're his child. You're his child. Secondly, now leaving the three tests of true Christian for the last time in 1 John, we'll look at verses 4 and 5. And victory or overcoming the world. I think everyone here likes to win. Raise your hand if you want to be a loser. Few, few hand, no, 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 no hands. Okay, so, so, my family's been described as competitive by some. Uh, I remember uh, my daughter Rebecca. She's here today, being put in a position she didn't want to be put on, and I remember her coach telling me that he used character to determine uh, his factor in picking who he put on defense. He looked for players who hated to lose. And so Rebecca was a defender for two seasons at LaGrange College. And they lost a lot, but <laughs> just saying. <laughs> so, but, but we want to win. We, we all want to win. Let's see what he says here. For everyone, verse 4, who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? So, first of all, he tells us uh, who everyone who's been born of God is who overcomes the world. If you want a victory, if you want to overcome the world, you need to know and understand what these verses are saying. First of all, it's who it's one who believes in God. If you believe in God, you overcome the world. Are you part of everyone here today? Do you believe in God? Do you trust him? Do you believe in him? Yes. This isn't dependent on you. It's him. It's everyone who believes in God. Everyone who believes in God. This isn't the one who's uh, doing everything in his strength. This isn't the one who's doing everything right. This isn't the one who has a life and the family and the job and everything is put all together. It's the one who believes in God. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. It's those who have been born again who overcome the world. Who overcome the world. So the who is specified. Everyone who has been born of God. He talks about next how the extent is specified. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. So it's over the whole world. So who is it? The born again. What is it it of? The victory? It's over the whole world. This is a nice victory we're talking about. Better than the national championship. ESPN's article said, Clemson comeback won for the ages. In three years, are you really going to remember Clemson had a comeback victory last night? Clemson victory won for the ages. No. But overcoming the world through the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to remember, born again, believers. This is a victory. And it's not uh, uh, a small victory. It's a victory over the whole world. Calvin notes in the Institutes, he says, it's not said that we'll be victorious in a single fight. Or in a few or in some one assault, but that we will be victorious over the whole world, though we should be a thousand times assailed. 
Let us sink in. It's not one fight. It's not just many fights. It's not even if a thousand times the enemy comes against you. We've got a victory that overcomes the world. Well, it also says, where does it come from? For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. It comes from our faith. God, the Holy Spirit, is declaring this now to you. We have the victory. We're out of danger. We don't have a reason to fear. So we can be strong. We can fight bravely because we have the victory in Jesus Christ. We will win. We will overcome the world. It's Him. We trust in Him. And it's through our faith. Please understand this is not uh, in this life you get everything you claim. Prosperity gospel. This isn't, I don't suffer. You know, I think recently standing up here has been myself and Mr. McCrina and Pastor Boyd and, and others. But did, did you guys notice anybody smiling more than Pastor Zeki, who's suffered more than all of us. Yeah, our, our theology is not the glory here and now. Our theology is the cross. It's the cross and it's suffering. But through the cross, we will have victory. We will have victory. And it will come through our faith, through our trust in Him. Overcomes the world. It's twice here mentioned in the present tense because it's ongoing now. Is because our battles do come daily. Is because our battles are new. Is because our battles come from every side. Because we have numerous battles. Is because the battles come all of our life. He says, this is the victory that overcomes the world. It's what we need. We need to have the faith in Him. He's going to carry us through this thing. He's going to carry us through this thing. These battles are devised by our enemy. But God pours His Holy Spirit out on us for this. Not just once, but lifelong. Lifelong. Imagine, if you will, Pastor Boyd up here, baptizing one of you young people. All right? And he's got this big vase, right? And it's full of water. He pours it out on you because in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the heads of the believers. And Pastor Boyd believes that's that's the best picture of a baptism poured out on the day of Pentecost. Why does he use so much water? Because it's a good picture. He usually tells you to bring towels. But when God does that through his Holy Spirit, it's, it's more like he keeps filling that picture up again and again and again while Pastor Boyd's pouring. Or maybe maybe it's like. He brings in a hose in here and just runs that over the little one until it just keeps flowing and flowing and all your feet out there are wet. God pours out His Holy Spirit and it's not a little bit. It's a lot. God pours out His Spirit in abundance, in power, for all our life, for everything, for every day, and gives us a victory that overcomes the attacks of the enemy and the world. Victory and overcoming are ours. They're promised to us. But it's not to make us lazy. It's not to make us lazy. The fight is still going on every day. So we've got to be vigilant. We've got to be aware. 
We've got to be ready. Uh, we have to be ready for the fight every day, not asleep. Assured, not asleep. Assured, not asleep. We take hold of ourselves. We talk to ourselves. And we fight in His strength and in His power. Overcomes, He says, what? What's overcome is the world. The world is all the enemies of God and His Spirit. The world is uh, our depravity. The world is our lusts. The world is Satan's strategies. The world is everything that's trying to lead and tempt us away from God. The world is, is every sin and struggle we are going against. We have to fight against. But the fighting is in His power. And there's overcoming and victory promised through Him and through His power. Verse 5 says, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So the deliverance comes from Jesus, the Son of God. We're believing in Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus is the God's man, God's Son. There's no hope without God. There's no hope in our strength. The victory comes by faith in God. The old hymn says, O victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with His redeeming blood. We have that victory. We have that victory in Jesus. And we've got three testimonies. The blood, the water, and the Spirit. Third point. So let's consider these testimonies. The water, the blood, and the Spirit. Verse 6 starts off. This is He who came... He who came, Jesus came. That's how we have the victory. And that's who's giving us a testimony. Jesus who came. The Old Testament prophets, they gave us types and shadows. They had in those type shadows lots of rituals for cleansing. They had big baths made of upside down shells that could hold water. And they would, they would wash as they would go in. They had all these washings, all these cleansing. They would sprinkle water at times. And then they had all these sacrifices, all this blood. That all pointed to a washing, a cleansing that needed to happen. The blood was pointing there needed to be a sacrifice coming up. A sacrifice that could cleanse us from our sins. These pointed to everything that would happen at one point in time. And verse 6 says it. Then He came. Then Jesus came. Jesus was it. He was what they all pointed to. They all pointed to Him. This is He who came. And how did he come? By water and the blood. We had foreshadowing. We had prophecies. Now we have Jesus. He's come. And now he's here. He's come. Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify the spirit, the water and the blood. And these three agree. Water and blood might be Jesus Christ coming in fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies moving forward. I let at least four different things that might be referenced here. Uh, I, I kind of like that. Uh, we had the water. Jesus had his baptism, you know, washed in the water and his cleansings. He, he certainly performed probably any ceremonial cleansings required going into the temple. So he had that testimony he showed in his cleansings. He had the testimony shown in his baptism. He had the water. The blood's pretty easy. All right. The blood is like the cross. So he came in the water. He came in the blood. Uh, so the blood is the sacrifice. So that's the testimony of the water. Uh, the testimony of the blood. 
of the Savior. It kind of fits because there were there were heretics or the Gnostics. They're saying you can't know anything. You know, evil in, is in the body and the spirit is good. So Jesus couldn't have been you know, exactly who he was. Sorinthus was a, a great heretic at the time was saying God didn't come on Jesus until his baptism. And then because God can't die, God left Jesus right before his resurrection. And John was writing, we know, probably against to some degree, Sorinthus' heresy that, that taught those things. So it's kind of neat. Jesus came with the testimony to Jesus was the water. Testament to Jesus of Jesus was the blood. So he's got these testimonies. God is sending the water and the blood. Kind of ironic that that takes down those two by saying these are testimonies of God. And here's his baptism, his crucifixion or his washings. Um, I could be uh, the other hymn says it rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side, which flowed. Be of sin the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. And John's gospel is the one that tells us the spear stuck in the side and water and blood gushed out. The testimony of, 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 of him in that sense. And Rock of Ages points to that. Uh, and the spirit is the one who testifies, it says, of these things. Because the spirit is the truth. It's kind of neat how he does this here in verse 7. For there are three that testify. Notice the order now switches. The spirit... And the water and the blood and these three agree. The Holy Spirit now goes in first place, which is really the right place because the spirit leads all. The spirit is the only one who can let these other things speak and, and give a truth and testimony to the water and the blood. And notice too in verse six and verse eight, it says the Holy Spirit is he who testifies. The Holy Spirit is a person here. We've got God, the father in this passage. We've got Christ, the son in this passage. We've got in Trinitarian fashion, the Holy Spirit, who is testifying in this passage. He's a person and he testifies and he's put in first place in this list. Uh, Calvin notes that without him, we could not hear the testimony even of the water and the blood unless he had opened our eyes and our ears to hear that testimony. So the spirit first, then the water and the blood. It's interesting in verse six, it says this is he who came by. Uh. Water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. We're going to come back to that. But the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. All right. He's a person. He testifies. He's the spirit of truth. For the for the sake of our weaknesses in the Old Testament, God gave him pictures. All right. Gave him washings. All those washings they had gave him sacrifices. All the sheep, all the goats, the doves, pigeons, bulls, all right, the altar. All right. He gave him these pictures because of human weakness. And now uh, he's given us Jesus Christ in the fullness of time. The perfect picture has been given to us. Verse nine. Listen, to this argument. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. You believe people every day when they say things to you. In our courts, we receive the testimony of men. All right. Men tell you things. You believe it. Look, God has told you through the water. God has told you through the blood. God has told you through the spirit. Are you going to believe it? You believe men. Will you not believe God? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. 
We believe people when they tell us things. We believe our teachers, usually. All right? <laughs> Will we not believe God who made, who made men, who made people, who made these teachers? Man is inferior to others. We even have men who are judges, right? And men who, who preside over, over court cases. I was called to be a juror the other day. Ninety-one of us sitting in this room for half a day. Not one trial came out of it. They were afraid to go see the judge. They settled. They settled. They didn't want to face, you know, trial by jury or whatever. So, so people end up settling. We fear human judges. What about the great judge? What about the judge of all times? We listen to what people say. What about when he testifies? When the judge of the universe, when the judge will hold all our souls in the balance on the great and final day and separate the sheep from the goats to the right and to the left, will we not believe him? When he sends his testimony, the water and the blood and the spirit, we believe men will we not listen to God? Will we not listen to God. Verse 10, whoever believes in the son of God has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Remember the spirit, what is called the spirit of truth. You know what's most important to God? His attributes, his character. Among these are truth. He sent testimonies. He spent sent at huge cost to water, to blood, the spirit. God has testified. God, who's the supreme judge, has testified. Will we believe in God? A lot of our friends, a lot of our family members, a lot of those holding to other religions are, are earnest. But God has given us His truth. He's revealed it. He's shown us what it is. It's weighty. It's important. He sent three witnesses. If we deny the truth that God has said about Jesus Christ and His Word, we're calling God a liar. God, You are a liar. We don't believe Your water, Your blood, and Your Spirit. You are a liar. You can be angelic in all other areas of your religion and life. But if you don't believe God here with what He said about Jesus Christ, you're making serious accusations to a very important person. So let's make this personal. Verse 11 to 13. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has the life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have the life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. According to John here, we all have life. Or we all do not have life or death. Christians, God has given us life. That life is in the Son. He's, he's shown us and given us a test that shows us we're His. And we have, we have eternal life. 
He says in verse 18, he's written this to, to us who believe in the name of the Son of God, that we may know that we have eternal life. If you're struggling with assurance, I, I hope you'll take comfort. This verse was written to comfort you, to encourage you, that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know that you have eternal life. But if you don't accept what he said here through his testimonies, you, you don't have life. You have, you have death, eternal death. And uh, you can be, uh, Calvin put it this way, it doesn't matter who you are, what your work is, what you create. Without Christ, your whole life and whole career is moving on to destruction and the judgment of eternal life. If you don't believe in God. I like Augustine's analogy of this. He, he described it like a race. Sounds like some of the races our cross-country teams went to this year. Rockers, tell me if this isn't true. There are some in races who with great zeal, there are some in races with great zeal who get off course. The faster they run, the further they are from the goal. And so in the end, they will be most unhappy. There's some running hard as they can, but they're off course. They're going to be most unhappy at Judgment Day. Most unhappy at Judgment Day. Hmm. Whoever has the Son has the life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Let's pray.